0: Hello and welcome to the "So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist" podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life/resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Your support helps to keep the ocean-tastic episodes coming. Special shout out and thank you to Royce, Joyce, Tonya, Laura, and Anthony for becoming Patreons. If you have found value in the show and would like to be part of keeping it going, please head to patreon.com slash biolife. For less than a dive tank refill or cup of coffee, you can help to support the show. That's patreon.com/marinebiolife. patreon.com slash marine Patreon.com marine biolife. Question. Where do seals go to see movies? The dive in. My guest today is marine conservation lawyer Chris Dombitski. Chris lives in the Great White North of Canada and is the vice president of Oceans North and the head of Policy Development and Council Department. Chris and Oceans North have played a pivotal role in creating the largest marine protected area in Canada. Chris wasn't always in this role, however. He was a criminal lawyer before he made the career shift into marine science. In today's episode, Chris shares how and why he made the shift, how he and Ocean's North were able to create the largest MPA in Canada, and he also shares a crazy polar bear adventure. So stay tuned until the end for that. Please enjoy. Christopher, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today.
1: Thank you. Me too. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Awesome. So I want to jump in with your current project because I'm really fascinated by this Could you explain what Lancaster Sound is and the marine conservation area that you are working to create or have created?
1: Sure. I'll just take a step back and and maybe just situate Lancaster Sound. So Lancaster Sound is really one of the most important eastern entrances to the Canadian Arctic. And if you can imagine the Canadian Arctic, so just at the top of North America, really defined by a large archipelago of islands between Alaska and Greenland. And our Western experience or, or European experience with the Northwest Passage has been one of exploration and, and, and marked by lots of failed explorations in attempts to find a route between Europe and the Orient. And ultimately, there is no singular Northwest Passage, but the Northwest Passages, the navigable passages, really just have one practical Eastern entrance. And that was named by the British Admiralty, Lancaster Sound. Its Inuit name is Talurutu Imanga. And so we go by that name now. And it's a reminder that uh, notwithstanding this European habit of renaming and imposing European names on places, there were people who lived there for many centuries prior to contact. And so Talurutu Imanga is the Inuit name. And just as it's the only practicable entrance for ships to, into the Northwest Passage. It's also really the most important entrance for marine mammals. So you have Lancaster, Telerutuimanga is really the confluence of a number of ocean systems. And so you have Pacific water coming all the way from Alaska across the Beaufort. And there's this water column that comes all the way through Lancaster Sound, Tel Ruti, Manga. You also have what would really be... Arctic water, and and much of that is meltwater coming off of glacier systems, as well as precipitation, river systems, and uh, and melting sea ice. And then you also, from Baffin Bay, have a current that's bringing in, in the water column an influx of Atlantic water. And just as it's an important migration route, just because of where it is basically as sort of this marine superhighway for marine mammals and eventually for ships, you also, because of that mixing of water columns, have lots of nutrient load that's carried from these, from these different sources and, and mixing. And so it, in addition just to being because of its geographic location really important, also because of its nutrient load, it's a highly productive system.
0: I was doing a little bit of research on it. And I saw that 85% of the planet's narwhals travel through this area every year. And there's like one seventh of the world's belugas and then thousands of bowhead whales and seals and millions of seabirds. It's like, it's a huge hotspot for amazing wildlife that many people don't get to see or experience.
1: Yeah, that's right. If your listeners ever get a chance to do, uh, I know we've got lots of researchers who follow your podcast, and probably just the curious general public as well. If you ever get a chance, now obviously is, is not the time. Nunavut is predominantly indigenous population, 90% Inuit. And there are all kinds of concerns in terms of additional vulnerability to to, uh, to this pandemic. And so basically, it's not impossible, but very, very difficult to go visit right now for obvious reasons. But if folks ever get a chance, Teleruti Manga is just an incredible place to visit in no small part because of that productivity. And related to that productivity is our communities that have been there for, as I said, hundreds, really probably thousands of years now. And that's super interesting because we've often thought about Inuit pre-contact as being a nomadic people and especially in that region of North Baffin and, and the high Arctic, it's really not true. And so there were, you know, there's some movement obviously between, for Inuit, between summer hunting areas and winter hunting areas. So that meant different living spaces. But to call that those communities nomadic is a bit of a misnomer because they've been consistently living and hunting in the same area for, as I said, many, many generations. And what that tells us is that not only is Telerutu Manga productive now, incredibly productive. As you said, yeah, the majority of the world's narwhal passed through their bowhead whales, huge seal population. You know, we could go on and on up the food chain, all the way to, to Arctic cod, the linchpin species, and then to zooplankton and, and phytoplankton that rely on er- early algae blooms, again, because of the nutrient rich waters. Um, and so what's really neat is that these communities have been there really for just this huge, you know, they have this just this huge history in that area and this great understanding of these systems. I counted myself really lucky to have been able to work in those communities, especially the community of Pond Inlet, which has just spectacular flow edges. And the flow edge is where the um, stable sea ice meets the open ocean. In those areas, that intersection of an ice platform and open water is, uh, it's hard to really compare it to anything because it's just so spectacular and unique but it reminds me in some ways in my travels of the way the water spring in the Serengeti in sub-Saharan Africa operates to just really bring in this huge confluence of animals that come and and use that that food source so it's just a really special place for all kinds of reasons cultural reasons as well as ecological and uh, it's something we really like to foreground in our work in the Arctic is just how important the human relationship is with these productive spaces
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important. So you've traveled to these different communities and these really remote places, and you've actually done a bit of research on, I saw Pew Charitable Trust sponsored an expedition up there. Could you talk a little bit about what the expedition was and your role in it and kind of some of the cool things that you saw?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so Oceans North is a, is a Canadian organization, but we started... Geez, about ten years ago, in a partnership between some other NGOs and some trusts, so Pew Charitable Trusts was an early uh, supporter, as was another organization. I think probably a lot of North American listeners would be familiar with Ducks Unlimited, and mm-hmm. both those organizations were a fantastic early support for us, and are still, in some respects, partners with us. And we're very open, so to us, coming up with a really, I think, at least in, in the Arctic, a, a novel approach to environmental campaigning. Now, there was a lot of pushback and suspicion toward, I guess, environmentalists and environmental campaigners in the Arctic because of some of the tactics, especially in the 1980s and early 90s around issues like the seal harvest and hunting some of the the big and charismatic Arctic species. And so there was I guess, a, really a discord between environmental campaigners and environmentalists. So just yep. to
0: clarify for anybody that doesn't understand what that is, so yeah. this is between environmentalists and the indigenous people that live there and their hunting practices.
1: So seal, seal harvesting for Inuit, has been just like right at the center of that culture, you know, really probably forever. Mm-hmm. And that's in part because so a lot of the Arctic species are highly migratory. And so, you know, for example, caribou are a super important food source and a very important source of what well, their hides are, are really one of the warmest materials on the planet. But they're not always close to communities. Caribou, have these long migrations and so the communities depending on where one was where folks were located but they might only see them once a year they might not see them and the same with with narwhal and beluga they're often migrating through an area they certainly don't live in the same place throughout the whole year whereas number of seal species live in the same area throughout the year right and so when there's thick sea ice in in these waters they maintain breathing holes and so they're really important because they're It can be sustainably harvested in an area year round. And also their meat is extremely nutritious. Their pelts are extremely important also for clothing. And their oil was was really important traditionally as as a, a lamp fuel. Mm-hmm. So that's the lamp fuel now is less important and, and largely a ceremonial, but the meat is still really important in those communities. And so I don't know some of your listeners will have been perhaps to Arctic Alaska and the Inuit communities in Arctic Alaska, and they're they're not so dissimilar from many of the the Canadian Inuit communities in that they are often several cargo plane trips away from fresh produce and many days away from fresh produce and fresh food. So from a nutritional perspective the species that are locally harvested are are way more important and just a way better part of the diet. And so and when, when I was approached by Ducks Unlimited and Pew to help build this this new and interesting campaign, I was really reluctant actually to join in uh, because I'd I'd already been living in the Arctic in uh, on Baffin Island for about I don't know 7 or 8 years and was really lucky because some very generous Inuit families really took me under their wing and and I got to learn how to, to hunt and harvest and i don't think i'd ever even fired a gun before i moved to the arctic and i just learned firsthand how important these animals are obviously in, in their own right as part of a, just an incredible ecosystem but also culturally and nutritionally in a place where you know you, you can't have at least easily uh, traditional agriculture and so there's the reliance on harvested species is is really central culturally as well, like I said, nutritionally. So I was, yeah, really, really reluctant to join into and start working on an environmental campaign. And I I came from a very different background. I was a criminal defense lawyer. (laughs) But like I said, I spent a lot of time in the bush and I spent really all my free time just learning from these really generous folks how to travel and live in a place that first blush seems very inhospitable. But the, the more time you spend in it, you realize that there's just this incredible abundance and productivity, often just under the surface or just under the ice. And what was... I guess what ultimately convinced me to embark on this journey was that the folks who reached out were just wildly interesting campaigners who were just really got it. Several of them had worked with indigenous communities in Alaska and and I really felt that they were being sincere when they said, you know, we want to help protect some of these highly productive Arctic ecosystems in part because these are some of the, the last, you know, super abundant ocean environments that haven't been bottom trawled, right. That haven't been decimated by um, so many of our industrial activities. And here's just a great chance to, to get ahead of, of some of that industrial activity in particular, some of the fishing practices that just cause what has, you know, turned out to be really irreparable harm. Mm. So, I was really heartened by that, and and so we together built a campaign that was really grounded in the places where we were working, and grounded in partnerships with those communities. And so all of our early work, all the way up to today, is really sort of premised on local partnerships and and working with communities. You know, which isn't to say that everybody agrees with us all the time, but as a just sort of a, an operating principle, we won't work in places where we don't have very strong community partnership and that's just sort of a great lodestar great way to work and it it also fits nicely because Inuit are culture that still really interacts very intensively with their with the world around them with the ocean around them and they're an ocean people so so communities really get it and they get what's at stake and so those partnerships have been lasting and really have have uh, life-changing I would say for me anyway. I've I have I have strayed far from your question. You're asking me. You're asking me about one of our early expeditions.
0: I was, but I'm also yeah. curious. And maybe you can weave this back into it as well. What does a partnership look like? And I'm sure this has stemmed from all of your time on these expeditions or interacting within these communities. But when you say community partnerships, is this? you know, everybody is kind of like talking together at the same table? Or is this kind of like more of a long distance? Um, and you guys get together like once a year? Kind of what does that look like? And then how did that tie into some of your like boots on the ground experience?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I guess the, uh, there's probably no singular way to answer that. So Inuit in Canada, benefit from Uh, Well, a modern treaty, we call it a land claim agreement, or or, I mean, there are a number of them of these agreements that provide different levels of self government, but a considerable amount of self government and autonomy and and, um, there's certainly a great amount of local decision-making and local authority in terms of the tough decisions about resource use and and possible conflicts in terms of resources. And so that could be oil and gas, that could be mining and intensive shipping, it could be commercial fishing, and, and, and again, these harvesting interests. And so The political bodies in the Canadian Arctic are are really important. And those are really community-led. The partnerships with those organizations and their leaders are really critical. And and so we, we have engaged in all kinds of collaborations with these kinds of organizations, these regional and local organizations. And so that can range from supporting their initiatives in terms of research or ocean protection, supporting their advocacy. And in addition, partnerships, direct partnerships on research and then as well when we engage in sort of in research that that we're driving and in which we're you know a big part of the impetus whenever possible and you know, we seek to to hire local people and that's really you know that's not some kind of benevolence it's self-interest because local folks are really essential to arctic ocean research and that you know they've got the experience capacity and just all of these, what we call land skills, which are, and, and marine skills, which, you know, have been passed on from generations. And so you, you can't just be a bunch of, you know, we'd call us kadluna, which sometimes gets translated as white people, but it really just means Southern Canadians or Southerners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd be a Kadluna too. You can't just be a bunch of Kadluna showing up in, in the high Arctic to engage in research and you know, think you'll pull it off successfully without good local partners who will bail you out of countless predicaments. <laughs> and, and then beyond that, though, we've, we've just got some great local partners up there who lead some of our research. So we've got a guy named Alex Hutuva up in Pond Inlet who has been working with us for for years and years now and working with marine biologists out of, out of Scripps, actually. We've got a longstanding great program working on deploying acoustic monitoring stations. And so Alex is just he's like a just an incredible jack of all trades. He he can kind of fix anything and weld anything. And he started by really by partnering with marine biologists in deploying these units and programming them, et cetera. And now he really in, in terms of the field work and the field science, he just leads it. So he can, you know, he knows how to really run all aspects of the field work. And so that you know that kind of partnership for us is just so wonderful and so valuable. Both in terms of just supporting the science, and then also what he's been able to share with us in terms of how important that whole area, so the broader Lancaster region, Talawutu Emanga, is community of Pond Inlet.
0: So what has your experience been like? I mean, you've done quite a lot of field experience up there, but starting with the, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but the Telutu Emanga? Yeah, right. that's pretty good. <laughs> Um, starting with the Telawutu manga, what has your experience been like starting to create this conservation area? We mentioned earlier that you did a cruise. Was that kind of like the kickoff point of being able to collect more data to create a marine protected area or a marine conservation area?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. I mean, just think about how to answer that. So, so first of all, it wasn't our idea to get that area protected. It was something that Inuit in the area had been calling for 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 a long time since uh, probably since sometime in the in the late 1970s or maybe even earlier in the in the mid 1970s and that coincided with a large push in Canada as well as in the North Slope uh, in Alaska in terms of oil Mm -hmm. exploration and so the federal government in Canada really was investing heavily in conjunction with the private sector in oil exploration and Lancaster Sound as it was then known had been the site of Fairly intensive seismic testing, mm. and communities witnessed that firsthand and didn't really appreciate the consequences. Right there, you know, there are stories of uh, lots of dead fish floating up behind those ships, and, and you know, reports of, of uh, injuries or at least the, and at minimum, the absence of the marine mammals upon which they depended. These communities.
0: The seismic testing is for oil and gas exploration to see if there if there is enough concentration of oil and gas in the area to warrant drilling, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that precedes drilling in any area, in any ocean area. And in those years it was really it was like these seismic ships would, would detonate bombs basically underwater and it would send a shockwave down through the ground and then back up and then there are these I guess units that measure that wavelength mm-hmm. and geologists can then come to some determination uh, in terms of the likelihood of oil underneath. Mm-hmm. And so one of the problems in addition to folks not really you know, local folks not necessarily appreciating the consequences of those seismic ships, one of the problems that resulted was that Lancaster Sound emerged as a place where there was a high likelihood of mm-hmm. oil and gas and of commercial high potential for commercial oil and gas. Um, and, and so at the time, the, those modern land claim agreements didn't exist. And so formally, at least on paper, Inuit had very few rights, you know, other than being citizens in a very remote place that was largely neglected, really, most of Canadian history and arguably still is largely <laughs> neglected. But they re- there was a lot of consternation. And from a community perspective, you know, I guess it was like, you know, they were sort of being asked to shoulder all of the risks of seismic testing and then potentially oil development and stood to didn't stand to benefit. Mm. And so there was sort of the obvious opposition to that. And then there was even probably better organized and more formal opposition further west in the Canadian Arctic in the Mackenzie Delta, which is just east of not too far east, the Alaskan oil regions on the North Slope. And so there was the conclusion then or it was sort of obvious that that this area just wasn't ready for oil Mm -hmm. development. And there were calls at that time for protection. And so those calls just kind of I, you know, I guess they were out there. And so we we knew that community leaders had expressed concern about industrial development and, you know, this highly productive, super important migratory channel. And really, really the campaign started by just going around and talking to people and, and identifying that support and realizing that even though, you know, decades had gone by since the, that seismic exploration, the sort of the community memory of it lingered mm. and the and there seemed to still be from our perspective a strong strong community support for protection in that area. Mm. I was asked to join the campaign and Lancaster really was the the first thing that that I my first task really was to figure out how to support some of those community voices and some of that some of the community desire how to support it and just find ways to make that a reality and not just a you know not just a call that was sort of you know languishing. And like I said I start I was a defense lawyer at that time and my experience in the arctic ocean was largely personal expeditions i was on a a sailboat that had attempted and then finally successfully got through the northwest passage and incidentally in those expeditions we sometimes would bring along marine biologists we'd go cast ctds and support various research initiatives to help highlight issues largely around climate change but I didn't have any formal expertise as a campaigner. And so I was tasked with, okay, you know, help these folks get this area protected. And I got to admit that I probably spent a few months just looking at my computer and scratching my head and just wondering, <laughs> okay, what does that, what does that mean? And where do you start? Right. Um,
0: <laughs> right. So
1: yeah. Like, how do you, I don't know. How do you, right. How do you get an area protected? I really didn't know. I, I mean, I'm not sure I do yet, you know, cause it, it happens in all kinds of ways. But one of the things that I realized early on was, you know, you need to figure out the story or the stories and, and, and help find stories that are really complex but you know one of the things I did in, in addition to talking to, to to locals was also just call up marine biologists, call up oceanographers. And I and I don't have a science background. I, I ran away from science after high school because I didn't think I was good at it. And it seemed just like mathy and scary. <laughs> so I did an English degree in law school. So I would like not a lick of science. <laughs> I, so I, you know, I was calling up oceanographers and marine biologists and just try to kind of understand, okay, everybody tells me this area is important. Why is it important, right? Why does it matter? And one of the things that was, you know, that I heard a few things. I summarized those a little bit at the beginning of our talk in terms of just this confluence of ocean currents and a a mixing, which is really a feature you see in most productive ocean systems, ocean ecosystems. And then woven into sort of that oceanographic story was also the, the, the migration story, right? The story of a great migration of marine mammals who Like clockwork, you know, exit through that sound in the fall as the ice is coming in and then come back in the the spring months, May and and June to the flow edge. And then as the flow edge is breaking up, just keep pushing through the, the sound and into the fjords of that Arctic archipelago. And so I started realizing, okay, there's, there's some stories here that we have to figure out how to tell because, you know, on these calls and and reading manuscripts and, and papers, there was, you know, kind of a level of complexity that where I would get lost. And then for me then to try to translate that into a public that cares was a challenge. So, so that was one of the first things we, you know, had to try to figure out is how do we tell all these stories and not tell them singularly you know not just tell a story of ocean currents but also tell the stories that we were hearing from from community members so there's a great story that's so central in that migratory story of of whales there's also just this wonderful human migration story and one of my favorite examples of that was uh, the story of a shaman Named Kid Larswak, who traveled from North Baffin and convinced a large group of Inuit to follow him. And basically, parallel with the, the narwhal migration, a, a lot of these narwhals that are coming out of Lancaster Sound in the in the fall follow a trajectory that gets them into the bays and the fjords of Northwest Greenland. And there's a human migration that that basically mirrored that. We also work. So we have we have campaigns in Greenland, mm-hmm. and Greenland's a super fascinating country. And one of the things that I love about it is that. It was colonized by human beings at the same time by Europeans coming from the, the southern tip of Greenland. So those were Viking in, like I don't know, the 10th or 11th century. And at the same time, it was being colonized by Inuit from the top who crossed an ice bridge. And there's this incredible ice bridge that forms most years above the North water Plenia, So that's another super productive Arctic e- ecosystem that I love talking about. And it's, it's connected to Lancaster because that whale migration, many of those marine mammals depend on the productivity of both those areas and spend time physically in both those areas. And, uh, and so that, that Palenia, so Plenia is an area of, of open water where, Normally, if not for some kind of wind and ocean current feature, it should be by rights, it should be frozen mm-hmm. sea and it stays open. And so, it, by staying open, it allows marine mammals to breathe. But just as important, it allows the sun to come in. And so, when the sun comes back up at that latitude, so in the winter it's dark and there'll be a period above 66 degrees north and that's above the Arctic Circle where you'll have days where the sun doesn't come up at right. all, right? And so, the further north you go, the longer those days are in, in those winter months. And so the sun comes back up in, depending where you are, but let's say March uh, uh, or April, but probably March. And because of these plenias, they're not ice covered. And so when the sun comes back up on ice covered oceans, a lot of that sun energy just gets reflected, mm-hmm. right? So the water can't absorb it. And so if you have a polynia where you have open water, instead of that energy being reflected back into the atmosphere, instead the energy is retained in the, in the water system. Which means algae can bloom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, one of the reasons we have these this incredible abundance of marine mammals that rivals, you know, marine mammal populations anywhere is that is that the Arctic's not barren, right? And because of these systems like Plinia's, they can absorb huge amounts of energy, and then because of these great nutrient loads, you have just the perfect recipe for an algae bloom, and then phytoplankton, zooplankton. Arctic cod. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, and seals and uh, and whales.
0: I just so, recently it, learned yeah, what sorry. a was because yeah. you know I live in Florida and in an area that is right. broken up by water and is surrounded otherwise surrounded by ice. It does not exist in Florida, and it was really fascinating. And it's really interesting that you describe algae blooms as a good thing because down here typically they're not the best thing, but up there these plenias do offer this really unique oasis in an otherwise ice desert, in an area that would otherwise not have any nutrients for these animals um, during these great dark months or just coming out of these dark months. So I thought that was a really interesting highlight.
1: Yeah, they're they're amazing places. I mean, so in fairness, like when the ice is thinning in the spring, mm-hmm. you do have light that gets through and algae that grows on the bottom. Right. But it's the plinias really that are are one of the critical features of the high productivity of that of that region. Mm-hmm. The North Waters is the, is the biggest, and from a productivity perspective, it's probably the most productive it's certainly one of if not we like we always like these superlatives and they sort of help <laughs> us explain things to the general public and i'm always a little bit cautious to overstate but the north water Plinia is at least arguably the the most productive oceans ecosystem in all of the arctic regions mm. and that's because because of that its ability to absorb energy and because of the nutrient load and one of the paradoxes sorry i should also say we've been working with folks in Greenland as well as communities in Canada to to come up with some kind of shared management co-management of that area mm-hmm. and the communities of Northwest Greenland and the communities of Northeast Canada, northeast Nunavut, that's the, the region, the Inuit region in, adjacent to the north water, really have a good understanding of, of how important that system is and understanding that even though many of those communities are a good distance away, the marine mammals upon which they depend rely on the, the productivity of that area. Mm-hmm. And many of them overwinter in that pollinia. And th- there's a really fascinating paradox with the north water pollinia in that the open water actually is dependent on cold winters. Mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of doesn't make sense, right? You'd think, well, the colder the winter, the less like the the water's open. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, what happens is that a good, cold, stable winter with a high pressure system and a fairly predictable climate helps create that ice arch. You can, I think we have a, a good explanation of that on our website. So that's uh, maybe, I don't know if there'll be a link yeah, to that. Yeah, I can put or a link anything. in the show notes or, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. So there's an ice arch that forms at the, at the northern end of this Plinia. So you can imagine this Plinia being this like kind of a huge gulf or a bay, maybe not as big as the Gulf of Mexico, but I don't know, probably I don't know, a quarter of the size of the Gulf of Mexico. Still, so still a huge region. And what, what happens is that good, cold, stable winter helps an ice arch form between Ellesmere Island in Canada and the northwest tip of Greenland. And that ice arch... So it's like a bridge of ice that forms between that holds back a bunch of ice coming down from polar pack ice, we would call. So ice coming down from the North pole, essentially, that's streaming down with a on a southbound current and, and with wind. And it, it holds it off and stops that ice from coming in. So when you have a good, cold, stable winter, you have sort of the classical plenia that forms. And one of the problems or one of our fears in this system is that with more variability, more climate variability, and warmer winters in this region, this ice arch isn't always forming. Mm. So when it's not forming, so when it's warmer and more unpredictable, instead of an ice arch forming, it collapses or it breaks, and more of this polar pack ice streams in. Mm. So what that means is with more polar pack ice, and sometimes the whole area fills in with ice, Mm -hmm. you can imagine then that energy coming from the sun gets reflected out. You don't have an algae bloom. and uh, Right, you don't in, have in, that in a, ecological
0: uh, chain that starts to happen with the sun hitting the water directly. It hits this polar pack ice instead of this little... I mean, I'm kind of visualizing like a lake, like a really big lake surrounded by ice is what I'm kind of a visual, visualizing a pollinia is.
1: Yeah, so some, and some polignias are like perfect lakes. They would really look like from the air surrounded by ice and others are, are, are more complex and more dynamic. And so the north water sometimes really from above yeah, is this perfect, huge gulf or bay of of open water. Mm -hmm. And other times it can be a little bit mixed, you know, a mix of of ice and and open water. And then sometimes it can just in these years where uh, there's high variability and and warmer temperatures, Mm -hmm. it just gets clogged with ice. And then you don't have that Algal and then plankton bloom and then obviously all through the system you have less productivity and so so that's certainly a concern of ours It's just let's is, is figuring out the science and figuring out the monitoring to understand what's going on and and what's happening and and how great a threat is that variability and what does that mean for the larger species the marine mammals as well as um well a great number of seabirds who are also an important part of the diet in particular in Northwest Greenland
0: so now your work this plenia I mean, there's several of them, but specifically this one that's like just north of the Lancaster Sound or the, I'm going to try it again, the Telawutu Manga. Is that, yep. um, Would does that help make your case for creating this conservation area To because it is so vitally important for so many different species?
1: Absolutely. So really, um, when we think of, you know, why we advocate for conservation areas and for for marine protected areas, there there are a few different Canada, there are a few different legal regimes that provide that protection. And I I don't know uh, the US context as well. I know you have some things called national monuments, Mm -hmm. which And then a few other, I think, marine protected. um, We have different levels of
0: marine protected areas as well. So I was kind of I am curious because I did see that y'all have different levels um, and there's like marine protected areas, national marine conservation areas and national wildlife areas. What 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 are the differences and which one are you kind of
1: yeah yeah so so that part of the difference is contingent on which agency is essentially is mandated to to administer Mm. them
0: okay
1: and and then there are also just regulations that are very specific to particular areas but as a general proposition National Marine Conservation Areas—we call them NMCA's. It's kind of a mouthful. I wish there was like a little bit of a snappier name to them because we talk about them all the time. <laughs> as a as a general prop, uh, proposition, they're they're probably the most robust, and so they'd be the closest to a marine version of a national park. Okay. And our national parks are in many ways very similar, and and their origins sort of parallel to the ones in that created in in the u.s in the in the 19th century so national conservation areas like Lancaster Sound or yamanga, as it's known are the most robust and there's a blanket prohibition in within them on subsea mining and and oil and gas mm-hmm. uh, and and that was really critical in in the creation of tellerutu again you know back to what we talked about earlier because um it's thought that there are potentially there is a high potential for commercial exploitation mm-hmm. in that area. And we were always of the position, as were I think it's safe to say the vast majority of community members, that it's just not an appropriate place to drill mm-hmm. because of the, the the high productivity, the the human reliance on that productivity, the marine mammal migrations. So the connection not just from that discrete ecosystem, but it's it's very direct connection to other highly productive areas as well across the Canadian archipelago as well as in Greenland. So So oil and gas was really at the center of of the fight to get that area protected. And another component of of that campaign was that um, just adjacent to the proposed protected area, when the ball was already rolling and there was impetus to, to get the area protected, but immediately adjacent, Shell Oil had what they considered to be these grandfathered oil exploration leases. And it seemed to kind of fly in the face of why we get an area protected and why it's important, especially in. In a narrative of connectivity and migration, it, it just seemed to fly in the face of that to, to, to imagine one day oil platforms just right on the on on the edge of this conservation area, right?
0: Right,
1: right. You know, kind I mean, almost maybe, feels like it defeats yeah. the
0: purpose of having it protected.
1: Totally right. I mean, ocean systems are they're just they're I mean they're too it, connected. You know that might even. They're so connected, right? It's different than, you know, maybe, a I don't know, a, a discrete mine a few kilometers away or a few miles away from park. I mean, and that might, that, th- there still is often connectivity there and it's often water that is the connector, but in the ocean, just like inherently, right? It's, it, you know, it, you can imagine, right? An oil mm-hmm. spill on the edge of, an, of a conservation area obviously has a direct impact. Right. So as does, as does the seismic testing mm-hmm. that goes into, to, to that. You know, pre-exploitation phase, and so uh, so something happened that was actually looked like a huge threat uh, in Lancaster, but but turned out to be kind of fortuitous. And it's that when I was in those early stages, sort of scratching my head and, and wondering, okay, how do we help, how do we help get this area protected? We found out that there was Canadian, a government agency called National Resources Canada, that what it does is it, it helps provide some of the baseline information to promote industrial development and, and exploitation. So they were collaborating with a German research ship. Part of that collaboration, they were proposing to do seismic testing in Lancaster Sound. And so that was obviously, from our perspective, a negative thing because of its potential impact on marine mammals. But it was fortuitous that those plans, anyway, because it it, it actually helped us really define, from a community perspective and then a broader Canadian perspective, what our aspirations were for a region mm-hmm. and how we foresaw. Future development of a region, and and it was a complicated thing because um, it's something we haven't really touched on. But Inuit communities in in northern Canada, and you can't really kind of speak and overgeneralize, but there there are lots of challenges. There 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 aren't sort of huge and robust economic drivers in these regions, right? And from a socioeconomic perspective, Inuit are are not doing as well as uh, more affluent communities in in southern Canada, and there are all kinds of challenges, right? So there is there is a huge desire to see jobs and to see see economic development. And and that desire is totally understandable, right? um, Places that just don't have all of the benefits economically of of Southern Canadians or Southern North Americans and have a cost of living that's exponentially higher, right? So there's an understandable tension. Notwithstanding some of these economic disadvantages... There was just overwhelming, and basically, just consensus in terms of opposition to that plan to bring in a ship to do seismic testing. And so it ended up being, we ended up. Partnering with the the regional Inuit organization, a terrific organization called the Kitikmeot Inuit Association, and supporting them in their opposition to that seismic testing, and and part of that opposition meant support for the creation of the National Marine Conservation Area, and so that happened formally a couple years ago. Now I guess we're a few years into to that uh, to yeah, to this area being. Yeah, to in this area being finally protected, but it was it was you know I, paradoxically it was it was the looming threat of a seismic a seismic testing ship really that helped us kind of you know organize a push and a final push that brought Lancaster Sound over the finish line and turned it into Telurutu Imanga. And what was so interesting was that the federal government had been proposing for a conservation area when they went and did consultations with those Inuit communities. Not only did they find support for it, but Inuit communities led by this organization, QIA, said, you know, well, it's great what you're proposing, this Lancaster Sound and we want to rename it our name. And not only that, we want it to be five times bigger than what you originally proposed. <laughs> and ultimately, that's what happened. It's it's the largest national marine conservation area in the country. And in terms of the, you know, the the, the management regime and and the level of protection, it's it's emerged as one of the most important conservation areas in the world. So it's something we're really proud of. And, you know, I, I say we're proud of it. You know, we're not the authors of this and we were just sort of players on the sideline, but but sure helpful to, sure, sure proud to support and to help the the communities really that spearheaded that campaign and and culminating in, in final protection. And and another side aspect of that was right toward the end of that, we also Encouraged, I would say, alongside a number of other conservation NGOs and and as well as uh, Inuit leaders, encouraged Shell to do the right thing, which was to relinquish those uh, exploration licenses. There was some issue as to whether or not they were still valid, and we might have ended up in court with them. But But in any event, Shell Shell did the right thing. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they gave them up, and then those areas also were included in final protection.
0: That's really amazing. I really love how it was like we know we want this area. And then here comes this like, I mean, big giant, right, of shell that could really severely impact this protected area. And so it almost garnered, I mean, it sounds like it garnered more support, right? You got more organizations and more people involved because you had this looming threat. And then so you got this pass and you have this conservation area and then shell ends up doing the right thing anyway. It's a beautiful story.
1: It is great. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it helps to have, uh, I don't want to call them a foil, but it actually helps to have-
0: A unifier. (laughs) uh, Yeah.
1: And it probably helps to have like, you know, an industrial alternative that's not abstract. Right. Like that's, that sounds ridiculous. And in some cases, that's not always the case. There are other areas where it's, it's probably easier to advocate for Mm -hmm. protection because there is no economic alternative on the horizon. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, from a fishing perspective, that's often the case where, and I should say just at the outset, we're we're really supportive and understand how important fishing is to communities. And what I always say is it's because we know how important fishing is in in fishing communities that we want to ensure that it continues, right? And so that means that we advocate for fishing practices that are sustainable, and, and that means... Especially where you haven't had bottom trawling before, that means, you know, that we're largely opposed to to those kind of harmful methods, mm-hmm. in particular bottom trawling. Often that just even that first exploratory fishing trawl causes damage that just irreparably harms that mm-hmm. system. And, you know, if you if you knock out coral and, and it's something people don't always know, but the Arctic is full of coral. Mm-hmm. It's not just that's not just a tropical thing. There's all kinds of there are all kinds of Arctic coral areas. We know about them and we first knew about them because of bottom trawling, right? And because of the coral coming up in the gear. Mm-hmm. So, so so sometimes you don't need a foil and it's, sometimes it's easier to go and advocate for protection You know, way before those practices come in. But certainly in the case of Lancaster Sound, it really helped to have an alternative that, that really was potentially on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, those are in years where... We looked at oil and gas. I think as as societies in a different way, and there was this tremendous amount of optimism amongst a lot of policymakers. Uh, for oil was at hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty dollars a barrel. So there was this real optimism amongst some policymakers for for Arctic development of oil and gas. Mm. Now I think that's that's um, subsided. Yeah. It, you know, who's to say whether or not uh, that happens again? It's right. it, you know, I, I like to think that we're moving beyond oil and gas, and that and that a different energy future is is upon us, but you know, there's, there's that tension and there's a pendulum that just keeps swinging back and forth. Right. And, yep. and obviously, you know, you, you'll hear about all kinds of policymakers, you know, talking about, you know, things like clean clean coal, whatever that is. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: The oxymoron that that is.
1: <laughs> yeah. The oxymoron that that probably is, you know, maybe there will be a day when, when there is such a thing, thing as clean coal. I just, I haven't seen it.
0: <laughs> so, wow. We, we talked about a lot. I did want to chat a little bit about your story though. I think it's fascinating that you jumped from criminal lawyer to ocean policy. And you mentioned earlier that you like you've sailed the Northwest Passage and you definitely have some like outdoorsy tendencies running through your blood. So it sounds like that may have helped you make the shift, but what, why, why criminal defense lawyer to ocean policy?
1: Well, that's, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um First I guess I, I grew up I grew up sailing. I grew up on the prairies, the Canadian prairies, just and sailing on a lake that, that we actually share with the US is called Lake of the Woods. And so there's a piece of it in Minnesota and then a big part of it in Canada. And so I just I grew up in love with sailing, but I was still a prairie kid and oceans always had this really romantic appeal and, and I didn't get to travel really far from home all that much as a kid. And so oceans were just magical and Oceans were magical and the Arctic was magical. I I grew up reading books by Jack London about Alaska and, and, and by Farley Mowat about Canada and always just dreamt of spending time exploring that environment. And I ended up, I was worked as a, as a lawyer in Toronto and, and also as, as a, someone who just loved being in, in, in wild spaces and really healthy environments. And it, like in many U S cities, the, the time it would take to get from Toronto to a, to a really a, a wild, healthy ecosystem was like just staggering, like a five or six hour mm-hmm. drive. So I kind of got fed up with that and found a job doing, uh, working for a legal aid clinic on in a on Baffin Island, and I, I told my friends I was going up for a year, and ended up spending uh, seven or eight because I just fell in love with the space, and and I, I, I loved the work, but it was really stressful and really hard. Mm. Um, and so to sort of keep sane, because you know when you're doing criminal defense in a place that has a lot of social problems, frankly, it was really important to me to 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 also see really healthy families, and so in in that region, it really became clear to me that. That the families that were really healthy and the families that were really doing better keeping especially their young men out of jail were the families that really still maintained a strong link between grandparents and grandkids that kept a strong link kept the language very strong and and they were harvesting they were spending all their free time out on the land catching fish and hunting seals and hunting caribou. They were getting out into nature, right? And, and, um, and it was just like such an intrinsic part of their life. And it became an intrinsic part of mine. And like I said at the outset, I was lucky because a few families in particular were just really open and shared and were happy to teach me in a very Inuit way. So in, which mostly means you just don't ask too many questions and, and just watch and be quiet and watch and learn by watching and by imitating. And I just spent more and more of my time in, in these just incredible natural spaces and just absolutely fell in love with it. And so my, in my, my, my free time, these expeditions just started, I started going on bigger and bigger trips and spending more and more time in Arctic environments to the point that I got approached by. A guy named Scott Heileman, who's who actually is from Florida and is probably the greatest environmental campaigner, not probably the greatest environmental campaigner I've ever mm-hmm. met, and I think must be one of the, the best ever. And he just came and approached me and, and just proposed to work together. Built an incredible team of of northerners and southerners. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just just proposed this, you know, just kind of this fantastic thing that just didn't seem real to me, you know, just this idea that I could get paid to go help local communities protect spaces that mattered to them. I didn't even know that was a job. And so, um, and, and so that's how it started. And and I, I guess I, I thought, yeah, I'll give that a try for a year or two. And, and it's been, uh, it's it's been a decade. <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> got in your blood a little bit.
1: You got in my blood. Absolutely. It did.
0: I love it. That's quite quite the jump from Toronto to Baffin Island to, I mean, now it feels like you found a little bit more of a happy medium, but I mean, ultimately from criminal defense lawyer to ocean policy. Um, but it sounds like you've found uh, quite the niche that you enjoy being in.
1: I love it. Yeah, I feel uh, just so lucky to get to do a job like this. And, you know, it's thanks to all kinds of folks who support our work, certainly a number of foundations that just appreciate and understand the importance of marine conservation and and understand our our version of that right which really foregrounds community relationship with productive marine areas and and has really respected the way that we operate so we've been we've been so lucky for that support
0: mhm yeah absolutely so i'm i'm personally very curious i also sail and i want to know a little bit more about your sailed attempts and final success through the Northwest Passage. That's pretty incredible. What what brought that on?
1: What brought that? So I was um I was as part of my job as a legal aid lawyer, so I was based in a little little city of at the time maybe six thousand people called a Callawit, but I would I would fly into and they're in, in Nunavut in so that's the, the big territory in, in the in the Canadian Arctic. In Nunavut there were probably twenty five communities. And so I would fly into those communities and, and the there would be a, a flying court system that would also fly in. And so we'd conduct court often in school gyms or, or community halls. And I was in a community called Arctic Bay, which is uh, way, way up in, in North Baffin. So one of the most northern communities in the mm. world. And it was December. So that meant there was no sun. And I was amazed to see that there was a sailboat f- uh, frozen into the ice about a mile out of the community, mm. and so I asked. I asked the community community members. I said, "Is it is that normal that you have a sailboat frozen in?" And they said, "No, we haven't seen a sailboat since for about a hundred years <laughs> since the whalers used to come here." And uh, and they said there are two Vikings living in in that sailboat. So I was I was really curious. Yes. And so so I I after after court I uh, I got my my parka on and my ski pants and my boots and I, and I walked out to this boat and uh And it was really ominous. It was dark, and there were a bunch of sled dogs tethered around the boat and tarps flapping, and a big steel hauled sailboat and so there's no like there's no doorbell you can ring right you can't and <laughs> you know kind of knock on the side of a really thick steel hull and they can't even hear you, especially with all that wind flapping on the tarps. so I had to kind of get through a couple of vestibules and'm I'm in the boat before they even hear me, which was sort of terrifying. And uh, and sure enough, I met this couple. They and they they did look like very shaggy, filthy Vikings. <laughs> um, there was a, it was a Norwegian couple, Knut and Camilla. And I don't know how much you know about Norwegian history, but Norway separated from uh, Sweden at the early in the early 20th century. I forget the year, maybe 1900. I'm gonna I'm gonna get it wrong. 1904, or something like that. And uh, it, it's 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 an integral part of the the Norwegian independence story. Part of their sort of their their modern creation myth is the fact that Amundsen, a Norwegian sailor, was the first sailor to successfully uh, sail through the Northwest Passage. Mm-hmm. So the British Admiralty had been trying for for really a century and had some just some epic failures. <laughs> Most notably and most famously, Sir John Franklin, whose ships were entrapped in the ice and only very recently discovered by uh, Canadian uh, archaeologists, and so it, it, and so, Amund- and so, it's just a super important part of their of their national history. And and Amundsen's ship is just like this, like it's very very sacred and it, uh, the Joa, and it's it's one of the most visited sites in Norway, and it has this almost you know this reverence. So so, Knut was trying to be the first the first captain to, to take a ship successfully back through the Northwest Passage. And so that I'd met him in, in the winter after he unsuccessfully had attempted and uh, we became pretty good friends. And so I would visit them when I was on court circuits and I would directly lobby to get invited to, to crew on that ship. So I bring them all kinds of presents. I guess <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, were, they were in a super isolated place and, and they, they, they really enjoyed their time in Arctic Bay, but I think they especially liked I lived in Europe and had some appreciation of where they came from. And I, for community members there, they were just sort of, you know, abstract wackos who just happened to be frozen in their bay, like really just, you know, wild Vikings who they didn't really understand. So I, I they were able to talk more about home with me, I suppose, because I, you know, had some understanding of what that might mean and, and what it might also mean to, to be away for so long, you know. So we became friends and, and eventually they invited me to crew with them. And so that next year, I, I think it was 2005, but I actually, I, I actually don't no offhand. I sailed with them and uh, we got to a place that's called on the maps, Franklin Strait and and is the exact place that the exact area that the Franklin ships got beset in ice. And lo and behold, we also got beset in ice and spent much of a month, well, first a few days fighting off and and getting out of really high pressure ice that was threatening to, to damage, perhaps destroy the boat. And finally got into a... A little cove outside of that ice pressure, and then we were trapped in that. We were trapped in that cove for about a month, and it was interesting. There was an a, there was an American boat that also canoed. Already at that point was was well known in the small sailing community. Every year there. Are at that time, there were maybe three or four ships or sailboats that would attempt the Northwest Passage. In in, in recent years, it's that that number's probably grown, but it's still a small community, and and so the boats are reasonably aware of one another. And so there was a, a boat that came in with us and got stuck with us inside that cove, and we were in that cove for about a well. Probably close to a month. I'd have to look at my journal, but but a good three weeks, just stuck in in and and very much contemplating leaving the the boat there for the winter. And so and uh, we did all kinds of stuff to keep ourselves mentally busy while we were frozen in that bay. In addition to fighting off polar bears, but we'd also uh, we put out fishing nets. And and yeah. one of the things I do is every day is I go for hikes and try to figure out a place where a, a twin otter airplane could come and rescue us by just kind of pacing out the distance between massive boulders just to see and to see if a plane could get to us. And it, it I don't know. It fortunately we never got to that point but i'm not sure we would have i'm not sure there was space for a plane to get us
0: oh my goodness what an adventure i like you just like fighting off polar bears casually throw that in <laughs> yeah
1: yeah That's, well yeah yeah one one uh one climbed on the boat one morning
0: what you were that close to shore
1: no there were ice floes <laughs> so the bear could just climb off an ice floe. Yeah. yeah
0: how'd you get the bear off the boat
1: uh well canute Knut uh grabbed uh we had a handgun i should i shouldn't admit that on the radio because uh Civilians in Canada. This is this is not the United States. We're not allowed just to have handguns on boats. Um, so <laughs> U.S.
0: Everybody uh, has a gun on their boat. They're like, whatever. Uh,
1: that's right, right? <laughs> in Canada, that, that's uh, it's it's pretty hard to have a handgun. <laughs> anyway, so canoe. You, the, you know, the last thing you want to do is shoot a bear. Right. Uh, and so he fired the gun close enough to the bear's ear that it it was sufficiently annoyed. I don't think it was even frightened, but it was sufficiently annoyed to to make its exit.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> that is a crazy story so you guys ended up getting yeah. out of your little uh, bay there and, and making it through
1: we did not make it through the canadian coast guard was and this was going getting into october mm. the canadian coast guard was was up in the northwest passage and everybody all the, the sailing community the boating community would we'd all talk to each other nightly on uh single sideband radio so shortwave mm-hmm. radio and the canadian coast guard said all vessels have to leave the Arctic. We're leaving. And, and I don't know if they, you know, they don't have total authority to order you out, but when they, when the Coast Guard tells you, you have to get out, you know, you heed that right. advice. Our problem was that we were stuck in the ice. So, so the, and so we, Knut was, he's a very uh, proud and, and, and stubborn guy. And so he, he didn't want to want, he didn't want to get rescued because he said, you know, he, from his perspective, he didn't need rescuing. He had enough Norwegian army provisions on the boat easily to last the winter and enough fuel to last the winter. And, so our, our provisional plan was that um, the rest of us would leave. I mean, I had a I had a life to get back to. I was already missing trial dates in court, uh, <laughs> and I was feeling really bad for my clients. So I, I had to get back to work. So so that's why I was I was pacing out the you know, the distance on shore to see if we could get a twin otter to come get us out of there. And so our provisional plan was to leave Knut to 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 leave Knut there and to just to charter an aircraft to get as close as we could find. And, you know, it might've meant a couple days hike till we could find a nice gravel spot where a plane could land. And then my commitment to Knut was that I was going to come back to him by snow machine in the winter once, once after freeze up. And once there was snow on the ground, <laughs> cause we were probably like, I don't know, two or 300 miles from the nearest Inuit community. So there would, there would be a way to get up, to get back. So my, that was my promise to him. And so he wanted to stay there for the winter, the U S boat, those folks really wanted to get out uh, understandably. And their boat Probably wasn't as well equipped to to freeze in and overwinter and so the so the so the coast guard ca- said okay we'll we'll come and help you get out and so our challenge was that we were in much too shallow water for an icebreaker, and so they got within about they were about i don't know now uh say four or five miles away, and so we had to get to them so the the most dangerous thing that ever happened on that trip was just get being able to get our boat into a position to be able to get rescued and so that was just a just a a hellish 24 hours of beating the boats through really thick ice we had we even had like c4 explosives on the boat like plastic explosives or one of our plans was just to blast our way through the ice but there was just so much ice that that just was preposterous so and the coast guard the icebreaker kept pushing and getting that ship closer and closer and they actually uh, they were in waters that that have never been sounded a lot of the so a lot of the Canadian archipelago still has water that has, has uh, waters that haven't been sounded. So they had it looked like really nineteenth century because when we finally got close to them, they were they had a tender a Zodiac running in front of this huge ship just using a lead sounder to test the depths. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it was just crazy, and so they 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 touched bottom, as as the captain said, and and I guess they took a UA, UAV underneath, and and there was no significant damage, but they went to great lengths to get us out of there, and it, it was kind of an amazing thing because so at, at that point already, you know, we'd started in summer, and it's it's winter, right? There's there's snow on the deck, and it's snowing, and there's snow on the land, and the ice is you've got this frazil ice, and it's starting to refreeze, and. Our living conditions on on Knut's Norwegian boat were Spartan, to to say the least. Like we hadn't we hadn't had a shower. The closest thing to a shower we had was heating up a pot of water on shore mm. and just kind of you know doing a sort of a squat once every uh, two or three weeks. <laughs> so. Uh, so we went from these just really tough conditions to that evening dining in the officers' quarters, having a chef wait on us, and then enjoying uh, the finest scotch with with the captain of this uh, of this icebreaker. So it was just like really a surreal moment to uh, to get rescued out of that prediction. Yeah,
0: that is uh, definitely a different world that you stepped into.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's amazing. What a fun story! Thank you for sharing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: <laughs> so before we wrap up today, I always like to leave the audience, and we're going to take a totally different tack. Uh, I always like to leave the audience with a conservation ask for everybody to go forth and do and bring into the world. And we chatted a little bit about uh, what you wanted to ask before the episode. So what do you have for the audience?
1: Okay, well, I've got two. So one, I think we were, as North Americans and as you know some of the the worst consumers on the planet, we were starting to wake up to just our Overuse of plastics mm-hmm. in in all aspects of our life, and then we got hit by this pandemic that just created all kinds of legitimate concerns about about the transmission, right, of, mm-hmm. of this virus, and and those concerns have often led us to just become again massively reliant on consumer plastic. And so, uh, what I would certainly urge your listeners is to is to find alternatives to. All those plastic knives and forks and plates and cups. And, you know, I I certainly think it's really important to support our local businesses and support local restaurants. But let's all collectively find ways to get around that plastic use and, and to demand it from suppliers and manufacturers and the service industry. I think it's just so important. And the other thing that I, I I thought about, and just as your neighbors to the north were were certainly aware of a, of an election looming, it's hard to escape mm-hmm. it. And so something just to think about as well is you know all the way up and down up and down tickets in 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 your election, and and we have a parliamentary system, so our elections are, are are a little more unpredictable. But just just to really be cognizant of, of political representatives and where they stand on the Worst crisis that's facing us, and I, I know this pandemic is really kind of looming in the forefront right now. But in 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 the the broader the broader from a broader perspective, the greatest threat to our continued existence and enjoying this planet as we know it is is climate change. And and so let's support political actors who are brave enough to stand up and help us with some of the big decisions we have ahead of us and uh, some of the changes we need to make.
0: Absolutely. Those are great asks. The vote one always gets me. I'm like, it's one of the simplest things that people can go out and do and they don't think about it all the time. So thank you for bringing that up.
1: Thanks so much. Well, it's just so important. Yeah.
0: So if the audience wants to find you, connect with you and or Oceans North, where is the best place to do that?
1: oceansnorth.org and i think there are all kinds of ways to contact us there's even a there's a donate button on the site and uh, we also we always welcome contributions
0: perfect i will put a link to that and everything we chatted today in the show notes christopher this was really fun chatting with you thank you so much for being on the show today
1: hey thanks so much it was a real pleasure
0: hello ocean lovers did you know we have podcast merchandise now If you are looking for a way to support the podcast and look awesome doing it, head over to marinebio.life slash shop. For our first design, I've partnered with Deanna from Coelacanth Studios and episode 21 of the podcast to create an amazing eagle ray. 10% of proceeds will benefit ray research. Check out the tanks, t-shirts, and stickers we have available over at marinebio.life slash shop. They make great gifts for the ocean lover in your life marinebio.life shop Thank you for listening to today's show I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life If you enjoyed this episode leave a review and of course share with your friends If you want more resources for ocean news including conservation topics and careers plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.